It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, August 5th, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. A court hearing like none ever seen in Washington. We take you inside the courtroom where former President Trump pleaded not guilty to charges of trying to overturn the 2020 election. He did at one point was looking over at Jack Smith and, you know, and I never really saw them meet eyes, but I'm sure they did. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The push for electric cars, even wind and solar energy, requires critical minerals. We have some. We're not accessing it all. And China continues to dominate the critical mineral market. Fossil fuels are the the basis of the American economy. If you were to remove fossil fuels from the American economy by 2030, as they seem to think is their goal, uh, it would be devastating. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. It was both extraordinary and routine. For a third time in four months, former President Trump was at a defense table to plead not guilty to felony counts. But his arraignment here in D.C. is unlike anything our country has experienced. A former president pulling into the courthouse garage just a block from the U.S. Capitol, a mile from the White House, charged with attempting to overturn an election he lost. Hundreds of reporters, plus throngs of onlookers, some supporters of former President Trump. 78 charges isn't enough. They want 200 charges, 300 charges. They just want to keep him busy for the next 14 months so he doesn't have time to campaign. Some supporters of his indictment. Lock him up! Lock him up, lock him up, lock him up. And many others just curious to see the scene wrapped around the sidewalk surrounding the E. Barrett Prettyment courthouse as an increased police presence kept a watchful eye. Only a few dozen individuals were able to watch the arraignment from inside the court. Fox News Justice Department producer Jake Gibson was one of those individuals. You know, as unprecedented as it is, this is getting oddly familiar. This is now the third time that, that I've seen the former president in court. The things that are different are what goes on outside of the court, right? Is all of the extreme security, yeah. the incredibly difficult process you go through to get into the courthouse and then one of the or the and then the courtroom or one of the overflow rooms or the media room they're all just intensely difficult to get in because of the Washington press corps where well, everybody wants to go and the logistics of getting the defendant into the courtroom because he is a former president with secret service protection you have the secret service and you have the marshals work, working mm-hmm. together right and there was obviously he went in through the garage but there was a time an hour before the hearing where a both a US marshal official and a US secret, secret service official told me we're not sure we want to go the secret service wants to go through that garage but it's like hurting a bull he may want to walk through the third street entrance and that that could happen so it's because just, there were cameras right. lined up on the third street entrance and they wanted yeah. that shot yeah. and we still you know we had a camera there we thought it wasn't going to happen right. but it could so talk to me about cuz this is now the third time you you've seen um uh, the former president sitting at a defense table what is his demeanor like during these proceedings he in this one 
in New York, he entered it like literally like a prize fighter. You know, he was the last person to enter, and he strutted you know to the table, and he glared at Alvin Bragg. Right uh, in Miami, when we were brought in, he was already seated. Right. And I couldn't, I, I guess I saw him looking over towards Jack Smith, but I didn't see him look back, right? In this one, Smith was seated before him. They brought in Trump last. He came from inside the court building. So he came through the back of the courtroom, not, you know, not the entrance that we all enter through. He came through where a defendant would come through, mm. right? Uh, sometimes they come through in orange jumpsuits. Because he had been processed before this. He, he would have been, been fingerprinted and there's probably paperwork. There's paperwork. It's like going to the DMV, your name, your birth date, mm -hmm. all that stuff, fingerprinting. No mugshot, because as the Secret Service has told us twice now, we have plenty of pictures of this <laughs> we know what he, if, he, if he were a flight risk, we would know who we're looking for. Yeah, we, <laughs> okay. we're, we just upload a picture. We're good on the picture. So he, he walked in. He sat down. He talked with both his lawyers. He walked in with both his lawyers, Loro, John Loro and Todd Blanche. He was chatting with them beforehand. Everyone waited on the judge for a long time. It was a solid 20 minutes. I saw that. Is that what, what, do we know why she was delayed? We don't. And, you know, there was, some of us are joking, what a power move, you know, make the former president <laughs> wait for you. But uh, it could have been that they were they were drawing up the papers, you know, it could have, you know, the, the, the release conditions, because he did have to sign those conditions of his mm -hmm. release. Okay. Um, it could have been that she was dealing with something else. You know, judges have full calendars. You know, she's a magistrate judge. She probably did a lot. So anyhow, he did at one point was looking over at Jack Smith and you know and I never really saw them meet eyes but I'm sure they did at some point because they were sitting pretty close to one another very close and there was not very many people between them for for I you know line of sight there was nothing between wow. them and they're probably seven steps from each other you know something like that as you watch uh, the president the former president in these situations does it occur to you that that he understands kind of the severity the significance of of what these court proceedings are i think he certainly does because he's been through enough of them now you know i mean she read out the charges to him and informed him of the possible penalties and yesterday's charges four of them counts four counts add up to a possible 55 years in prison. There have been reporters in town here who've tallied up and, and, and tell us that he's facing, if you look at all the stuff that he's facing in the different jurisdictions, he's facing already over 600 years in charges. Obviously, he'd probably never do that, and he may be found not guilty in all these cases. But this is incredibly serious stuff and unprecedented. You know, that courthouse has been there for a long time. That courthouse did a lot of Watergate stuff. Yeah. That courthouse has been there for a yeah. long time, okay? That, that courthouse has never seen anything like this. We always look back in awe at Watergate. That's kind of nothing compared to this. We have a former president as a defendant in a federal courthouse in Washington, D.C., steps from the Capitol. Steps from the Capitol about a mile from the White House. These two locations that are going to be so central in the prosecution's case. Right. And here he is, seated before a special counsel and brought in through Secret Service, and he's facing 55 years here and hundreds of years overall. And these charges are unprecedented, defrauding the United States as a president, trying to overturn a peaceful transfer of power. Conspiracy to deny rights. Conspiracy to yeah. deny rights. And we don't know about the co-conspirators yet. We think we know. We think who they we are. have a good idea who they are. And they and they are unindicted co-conspirators, right? Are, are they unnamed because they are unindicted? I think that's probably okay. the case. Right? So if any of them are indicted, 
we'd we'd learn who they are. Yes, we'd get their names. Is but, there a reason they wouldn't be indicted at the same time as, as Trump? Maybe they just don't want they maybe they want to get this going so fast that they don't have time to do the rest of it. They want to get his trial going and they don't want to wait for the rest of it. Um, could they be trying to flip anybody? Sure, of course. They I mean they could be pushing them hard. Okay, to, okay you know, here's your target letter. What do you want to do? Right. You can come talk to the grand jury or we can indict you. You know, that's kind of their play. Okay. Let me, you mentioned the other jurisdictions here, the New York State trial, uh, which is on state charges with the, the Stormy Daniels payments, is expected to get underway in March. You have the first federal trial about the documents at Mar-a-Lago down in Florida. That's expected to start in May. Uh, the next court date here in Washington is the end of this month. Uh, we are told the judge may set a trial date at that point. How do you schedule trials with different jurisdictions, different judges, different crimes, and everybody kind of wanting this to move forward, at least from the prosecution standpoint? I think the prosecutions all have to just, they have to go fast and get their date set before another jurisdiction does, right? Um, so on August 28th is his next court mm -hmm. date. That's before U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin. He was not before her. He was before a magistrate judge. Uh, that judge said she had talked to the U.S. District Judge, and that U.S. District Judge, Chutkin, wants, a, wants to set a trial date on August 28th. The defense wants as much time as they can get. They say this is going to be overwhelming, immense amount of discovery material to go through. They claim that the, that the government has had three and a half years. I don't know where the three and a half years number comes from. And maybe they're bringing this all the way back to before Crossfire Hurricane or something like that. I'm not sure. But, you know, I, I just don't know. But, but their point is that this has been a long investigation. And that they need time to go through the to go through all this discovery material. The prosecution, of course, wants the exact opposite. Uh, the prosecutor said that he wanted to, to operate under... Uh, Mr. Wyndham is his name. He said he wanted to operate under regular order, which means a speedy trial, that they would operate under the speedy trial uh, amendment rules, which means we would have a trial start 70 days from the indictment. That's very soon, right? Two and a half months. Yeah, yeah, very soon. And the defense wanted none of that. We do not want to be... That's unlikely, though, right? The judge probably doesn't go along with that no that's uh, I, I think that's unlikely but maybe she splits the baby you know maybe yeah. it's which like, was kind of what they did in in South Florida right the, she she played it almost perfectly right yeah, she got the soft spot the the the, the the prosecution had asked for I think December uh, the defense had asked for after the 2024 right. election and she said May and she said May which which gets us past the bulk of the primaries, I think there might be a primary or two There's out there. There's a few, but, but it's but, basically wrapped the, up by but, then. Yeah. By then, the nominees yeah. decided, yeah. right? But they've also got it before that mad push of the general election and before the Before the conventions, right? all of that, yeah. So she's kind of got that sweet spot. So this judge needs to decide, does she want to go in April? Does she want to go in June? Or does she let well, them push it till after the, the, the election? Which is doubtful, because she's been... Tanya Chuckin has done a lot of prosecutions of January 6th defendants, and she has pushed the timeline, and she has punished them harshly. Hey, to be fair, almost every judge in the D.C. Circuit has done a lot of these January 6th cases. There's just been so many of them. They've all sort of had to handle these cases, right? So Hundreds. That won't be a new dynamic in this case. Um, 
I am curious, too, is a judge tries to set a, a trial date with all of the, the sort of variables that you just uh, underscored. Does that give us a sense of how long they expect a trial to last? Well, we know that in in South Florida, she's told us, Judge Eileen Cannon has told both sides that she she's blocking three weeks. That and doesn't seem like a very long trial. Doesn't seem like a terribly long time, although... That a lot of these federal trials, you know, when you look at the other ones that we've done recently, Sussman, Danchenko, mm-hmm. things like that, even Paul Manafort, right, which was a, a pretty intense trial, pretty high profile, three to four weeks. Okay, you know, so that's pretty standard. It is fairly standard from what we've seen, you know, in other cases surrounding this kind of subject. Okay. Um, so what are the next steps then? I know the end of August is this next hearing. Trump doesn't have to appear at that, right? He does not. And, and I think we may get, if we don't get a trial date on that, we'll, we'll get her being really pushing for a trial date. And then next week, August 10th is, is the arraignment for the superseding indictment in South Florida. Now we haven't figured out yet. Does he have to attend that? Exactly. Oh, we don't know. We have to figure that out. That's my- Because they added charges to the original indictment. Exactly, and that's my next order of business. After (laughs) I'm done here, I'm gonna go try to figure figure out. out. Because the last question I have about what we saw this week in Washington is we have heard Trump's attorneys talk about a change of venue. Do you have legal grounds to ask for a change of venue because you don't like the political makeup of a potential jury pool? Because that seems to be what their argument is, right? I think that that will be. That it's heavily Democratic, that it's too connected to the Capitol, uh, that you can't get a fair shake here. They've suggested West Virginia, which I should note has been heavily in favor of former President Trump. But at any rate, I mean, what's the burden that would have to be met to get a court to agree to move it out of the jurisdiction where the crimes are alleged to have happened. I think they'd have to they'd have to prove to the judge that this this just you can't get a fair trial here. And I and I think it's also fairly doubtful that it would happen. She's going to want this case, I think. Well, and other January 6th defendants have tried to get their trial moved and they've been unsuccessful. Right. Um, the so Boston no... Marathon uh, bomber tried to get his case moved out of Boston. It was unsuccessful, right? I mean, it so, is rare to get cases moved out of those jurisdictions and it's also there hasn't been precedent on the january 6th front right right so that so it might be difficult however right we could be wrong there's a lot there's a lot unusual about (laughs) these circumstances um jake gibson uh in the courtroom for now three separate um arraignments for for former president trump potentially uh will be in in georgia in in a short while as well so we'll continue to check in as we we follow all of these cases and trials thanks so much jay and georgia could happen in the next couple weeks that's right yeah all right (laughs) thank you from the fox news podcasts network i'm ben dominich fox news contributor and editor of the transom.com daily newsletter and i'm inviting you to join a conversation every week it's the ben dominich podcast subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com The International Energy Agency says a typical electric car requires six times the mineral inputs of a conventional car. An offshore wind plant requires 13 times more mineral resources than a similarly sized gas-fired plant. Lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese, and graphite are crucial to EV battery performance. Rare earth elements are essential for making wind turbines and EV motors. And electricity networks need a huge amount of copper and aluminum. Even if metal recycling efforts were to increase 100-fold, 
there simply isn't enough material in circulation to meet the growing demand. Thus, the unavoidable truth is that we cannot develop cleaner, greener technologies without more minerals. And we cannot secure enough minerals without a significant focus on mining. Dr. Misael Cabrera is the University of Arizona's director of the School of Mining and Mineral Resources. He told the House Natural Resources Subcommittee field hearing on critical minerals access in July that we mine with more care, but also with a lot more red tape. In contrast, many foreign governments do not operate under the same strict regulatory environment that we do in the United States, creating an unfairly advantaged dominance when it comes to mineral production. In 2020, China led all other countries in copper smelting. To add environmental insult to economic injury, much of that smelting capacity is powered by fossil fuels. Earlier this year, President Biden stood next to Canada's prime minister and indicated we don't have that much in the way of critical minerals. We greatly need Canada in terms of the minerals that are needed. Well, you guys... We don't have the minerals to mine. You can mine them. You don't want to produce them. I mean, you know, turn them into product. We do. But some disagree with that and say actually the Biden administration has paused or stopped mining projects in the U.S., like when the Interior Department announced a 20-year mining moratorium on thousands of superior national forest acres, stopping a proposed cobalt and nickel mine. The administration also put a pause on an Arizona copper mine and on building a road in Alaska to a potential mine with copper and cobalt. Critical minerals that uh, are going to be used. I mean, that's one of the great things about America is that We are innovators. Rick Perry is a former energy secretary and former governor of Texas. We've historically been innovators, and uh, that's uh, incredibly important uh, to the future of the world, actually. Um, You think about over the last, well, let's just say the last century, uh, the vast majority of the innovation that's changed the world came from America. And, uh, you know, whether it's been in the uh, the IT world, uh, whether it's been in the EV world, you know, going going to space. Now, there's some other folks out there that have been semi-competitors, but nobody's done it like the U.S. I think we uh, we we got we have that trophy, uh, and we need to keep it. So, d- directly to your question about critical minerals and what we as a government, and I'm I'm going to talk about both the federal government and and state governments because state governments have uh, a role in this as well. From time to time, the federal government will be behind the states when it comes to some of these uh, uh, particularly regulatory environments. But let's just, I'm going to say, what are three things that the federal government could do? And one of them is going to be to recognize and to allocate capital to these promising U.S. resources. For instance, there are some areas in the country. Uh, I have uh, knowledge of of, uh, uh, lithium uh, processing technology uh, that I came across as the Secretary of of, of Energy uh, that is based in Southern California uh, around, well, actually on the Salton Sea, Uh, retrieving that brine And this technology uh, has the ability to separate out the lithium uh, molecules. Uh, I think there's some cobalt, maybe some nickel and other uh, rare earth minerals. So 
you know, recognizing that we have these deposits in various places around the United States. I think there is, uh, I think there's some uh, on the East Coast over in the Carolinas, actually. Uh, I think there's some lithium mining going on in North Carolina, as my memory serves me. There's some mining going on in Arkansas. There is a substantial um, deposit in far West Texas. Uh, it's a it's a deposit called Round Top Mountain, and uh, they are just becoming on everyone's radar screen, so to speak, because of the potential size of the deposits there. Uh, I think they still have a way uh, a ways to go from the standpoint of of getting it online, and that brings us to the second. I think very important thing that uh, the federal government and the state governments can do uh, to help uh, in this process, and that is to streamline the permitting process. Right. I Don't make ask it hard. About that. I mean, yeah. So, w- one of the things I learned as a governor is to 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 govern. There's only four things that you need to get right. Now you can get in the way and do you know get distracted and do a bunch of other stuff, which government tends to do. But don't overtax, don't overregulate, don't overlitigate, and have a skilled workforce. And skilled workforce basically translates into having a accountable public schools. So that you know you're you're developing the workforce that the private sector needs to go right. to, to go forward. So those are the four things. It's really pretty simple. You know, finding the people to understand that and get elected to those offices and stay focused on that's a, a challenge from time to time. So, uh, but, uh, so when, when you hear President Biden stand next to Canada's prime minister in, in March and say, we need Canada's minerals, he said, we don't have the minerals to mine and you do, you don't want to produce or turn them into product. And we do that. It just sounds like you're saying that that's not accurate. We do have the, the minerals to mine here. Yeah, we do. Uh, this is not the first time that, uh, President Biden has uh, misrepresented uh, the truth, uh, whether it's uh, on fossil fuels. And, and, I, and I don't want this to turn into, a, uh, you know, just a bashing the, the current administration, but they make it so easy from time to time. Uh, fossil fuels are the, the basis of the American economy. If you were to Remove fossil fuels from the American economy by 2030, as is, is they seem to think is their goal, uh, it would be devastating. Uh, it'd be devastating not just to the American economy, it'd be devastating to people around the world. Because if you, if, if, if you salute the flag of the John Kerry parade and, and the environmental activists that uh, uh, seem to follow him and his ilk, then here's your result. You are telling literally hundreds of millions of people, if not billions of people around the world, you're just not going to live any better life than you have today. Most likely you're going to die and die an early death because you don't have access to the electrons that would get delivered to your community by the use of fossil fuels. Uh, natural gas is a clean burning fuel. I have no idea why this administration doesn't recognize that uh, uh, the, the, the clean burning uh, aspect of natural gas, which America has an extraordinary abundance of, uh, and actively moving uh, that fuel 
into China, into India, places that are really putting out substantial amount of emissions. Right. Um, so, you know, my, my point is that fossil fuels are going to play a very, very important role in the world for a long time into the future. So I guess they'll this, also play some role in actually doing the mining of the of the critical well, minerals. And I wanted to ask you about that. I wanted to ask you about that because it, it seems like I'm, I keep reading the Biden administration um, is putting pauses on, you know, in an air, a mine in Arizona, uh, a, a, a very long road in Alaska to a copper and cobalt mine, uh, a potential yeah. mine in Minnesota. What's what's happening here with these these pauses or these denials of, of mining for these minerals that we need for the EV batteries and the solar panels? Well, that that fits nicely into number two that I laid out, which is streamlining the permitting process. Uh, if if you are blockading the permitting process in, in any of a uh, of a number of ways, then uh, you're doing your best to stop um, any movement towards making. You know, it, it's it's so counterintuitive. You have this administration that's standing up and saying uh, EVs are the way to go. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna give incentives to all of these companies to create. Uh, electrical vehicles and the batteries that are there, and we're going to save the planet with uh, zero emissions, et cetera, et cetera. Then on the other hand, you have them standing in the way of the mining of these minerals that are tantamount to whether or not you're going to have an EV. Now, either they're incredibly short-sighted or there's something else going on there. Now, I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist here. But the only other place in the world uh, that these minerals are in abundance are the country that controls these minerals around the globe is China. So China's clearly shown us that they're not our friend. Now, do we do business with people that may not love us? Sure, we do that all the time, but that's okay. Uh, But to make decisions that clearly give a benefit to a sworn opponent of ours who their goal is to become the most influential uh, country in the world is not good public policy. Uh, And and it's certainly not in the best interest of this country. So that, yeah. So then is it an, is it a national security issue? Like could somebody, Make that argument that, you know, we need the permitting reform. We need to mine these things. And yes, there are environmental concerns, but but can't we do I mean, even if there are environmental concerns, can't we do it in a way that's probably much cleaner than China would mine for critical minerals over there? Yeah. And and it's again, it goes back to innovation and the United States ability uh, to innovate and come up with new, safer, cleaner ways to I give you a great example, nuclear power. And, and this administration appears to not be a big fan of nuclear power either. You never see them talk about it. And historically, I'm a child of the 60s, okay? I was you know, going to high school in the 60s when uh, the nuclear uh, war was uh, staring us right in the face. And uh, you, you won't remember this. You're not old enough. But uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson did an ad where they pulled the petals off of a daisy. Yeah, we only had this much time left before the uh, the Russians blew up a nuclear weapon, and that scared people. And then we saw Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and Fukushima, 
And those historically old technology nuclear reactors uh, scared people about nuclear yeah. uh, power. So today we have walk-away safe, small modular reactors uh, that are becoming economically sound. And again, the government's lack of expedition of getting these permits into place. I mean, if you really care about the environment, wouldn't you think walk-away safe, zero-admission, small modular reactors would be at the front of your uh, of your parade, the tip of your spear to go address this issue uh, of, of climate? So, you know, there's just so many uh, things that are... Uh, you know, almost psychotic here out of this administration uh, from the standpoint of, you know, whipsawing you back and forth. Oh, gosh, you know, Canada, you guys, you guys bring the, the minerals to bear because we don't have any. Yes, we do, Mr. President. We got a lot of minerals and we know how to deliver them and we know how to deliver them the most environmentally uh, friendly of any country in the world. So and, 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 that, and that brings me to the third thing uh, that I wanted to, to mention, and that is to uh, understand that we're going to require uh, suppliers and significant investment uh, in the supply chain. Uh, and, and obviously, that reason is what we've already talked about, is okay. so that we are not vulnerable to being held hostage by those that do have these minerals and are going to go mine them uh, in places like Africa. And you can bet that the environment and the people uh, that are being used to mine these are not going to be anywhere near as good as what we would do in, let's say, North America. Mm-hmm. I got one more for you. You know, we've heard a lot of hearings, especially this year, about our grid infrastructure. And at one hearing, the head of FERC, uh, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, told the senators, we have a looming reliability crisis in our electricity markets. And a one commissioner used the word catastrophic. Um, he, he was talking about um, the pace of power plant retirements, to be specific. So if, if we're going to all be expected to rely on electricity, where's all the electricity going to come from if our, if our grids aren't up to task? Yeah, good point. And you don't have to look anywhere, uh, even outside of my home state that I dearly love. Uh, I was a big proponent of uh, bringing wind industry, uh, wind energy uh, into the state of Texas back in the early 2000s. Uh, Natural gas was $14 in MCF. We had only uh, old gas plants or gas plants and old coal plants and a couple of nuclear plants. And we saw gas going to $14 in MCF. So we looked at some alternatives. Wind at that particular point in time seemed to be a, uh, a legitimate alternative. I made the statement privately and probably publicly as well that if we could get to 15% of our dispatchable energy with um, re- renewables, and at that particular point in time, it was almost all um, wind, solar hadn't become economically feasible. But if we could get to 15%, we would be just really serving ourselves and having some alternatives, having another tool in your toolbox, so to speak. Uh, That was in about 2005. Well, fast forward now, 15, 16, well, 17 years later, and 
today, at the end of 2023, the great state of Texas, this massive energy producing state, and when I'm talking about energy here, I'm talking about uh, fossil fuel energy producing state, literally 200 plus years of of, uh, natural gas that we know about. That state is reliant upon renewables for 46% of our dispatchable energy. Hmm. And what happened is, you know, the federal government uh, and giving their incentives, again, governing is pretty easy, uh, those four things that you have to do. You incentivize what you want more of. You tax what you want less of. So Mm -hmm. giving incentives to wind and to solar the way that they did is, you know, these businesses looked at it and went, well, of course, let's go build wind energy. And the state, I will criticize them just a little bit here. uh, The state should have been giving some incentives to the fossil fuel and the uh, uh, SMR uh, small modular reactor uh, industry as well to bring them in for base load. Because mm-hmm. what happened in 2021, there are, you know, the Houston Chronicle and some University of Texas professor, I think his last name is Weber, uh, they basically are in cahoots uh, on the story that the reason Texas had this problem was because the natural gas froze up. And that is just an absolute and total lie. Uh, it, it is not correct. Now, d- did we have problems across the board? We did. But had it not been for fossil fuels, in the state of Texas, natural gas in particular, the grid would have collapsed. And that is a catastrophic event. As it was, fossil fuels kept the grid up. Uh, but the first the first power supplies offline in 2021 were wind and solar. And so, you know, people need to quit, you know, just defending their positions because they're invested in them so much. And really look at what's in the best interest of the, of the people of this country. Uh, there's nothing wrong with wind, nothing wrong with solar as uh, part of your portfolio. But the idea that we're going to power this country with wind and solar is a fool's errand. And so fossil fuels and nuclear power are where we need to be focusing. And if if we get that right, not only will the environment uh, be better served, uh, but people will be able to turn on the lights and power their homes, cool them in the summertime, heat them in the winter when they need it. Former Energy Secretary and former Governor of Texas, Rick Perry, thank you for joining us. You're more than welcome. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington, we speak with Fox's chief congressional correspondent, Chad Pergram, about appropriations and reaction to Hunter Biden's business partner testifying to Congress. We also speak with Christian Link Young, the deputy director of the Domestic Policy Council for Health and Veterans, about expanding access to mental health care. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jessica Rosenthal, and this is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. 
Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.